Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible, so don't get intimidated. The very last book of the Bible, and we're in chapter 6. And I would like to uh, read this text with you. If you'll stand with me, I'll read it. And, and we're actually going to go back a chapter. We're going to look at the first seven verses uh, of chapter 5. And I think I may have forgot to throw this on our slides. So, oh, what do you know? She's on top of it. Uh, and so this will help set up where we're going uh, in the book of Revelation here. So chapter 5. Verses 1 through 7, and then hop into chapter 6. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne And of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then just hop down to chapter six, verse one. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the covers Uh, in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand this is the word of the lord amen go ahead and have a seat and so we are in week 13 of our revelation study 
studying the end times, going through what uh, students of the word of God call eschatology, or the study of end times. And when it comes to eschatology, the study of end times, it is so important not to become unduly dogmatic to the point of causing division. And so as we begin a new section of the book of Revelation today, a section that's going to go through chapter 19 of this book, 14 chapters and and, uh, some two-thirds of the book are going to be about what is called the tribulation. And as we teach this and preach this and hear from this, we do it with open hands and a humble heart knowing that there's many men that love Jesus and that are studying the word and trying to understand it. And as I come, and and here it is, Sunday morning, time to preach and teach. I'm going to be preaching and teaching the best of my ability to not read into the text my own presupposed ideas, but to know from the word what's going on here. And so uh, give me a little grace as I do that, knowing that I do it with humility, and yet I also do it with conviction uh, knowing that there are great, there are great um, things that flow out of uh, this theology and this understanding. As we look at Revelation chapter 6, you might take your uh, Bible and, and keep your hand or a bookmark in Revelation 6. Go back to Matthew chapter 24, maybe even throw you know, a, a little ribbon in Luke 21. Uh, these are chapters that speak of what is called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. Uh, We're also going to be hopping back to the book of Daniel today. And so if you want to take your Bible and go back to Daniel and throw a little slip of paper in there as well, also an important book in dealing with uh, Revelation 6, as well as through chapter 19, the Great Tribulation. Uh, Recently, I've read about three different books having to deal with uh, the polar explorations, both the South Pole explorations and the North Pole explorations, what they call the kingdoms of ice, great, brave, and courageous men trying to explore the world and find out what resources are available for the people on it. And while on the South Pole expedition, British explorer, very famous Sir Ernest Shackleton, left a few men on Elephant Island promising that he would return. Later, when he tried to go back, huge icebergs blocked the way. But suddenly, as if by a miracle, an avenue opened up on the ice and Shackleton was able to get through. His men were ready and waiting, and they quickly scrambled on board. No sooner had the ship cleared the island than the ice crashed back together behind them. Contemplating their narrow escape, the explorer said to his men, quote, It was fortunate you were all packed and ready to go. They replied, We never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other, the boss may come today. And that is a great heart to have as Christians. As you read the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24 and 25 of the book of Matthew, chapter 25 especially emphasizes that we ought to be those watching and waiting his return, for we do not know the hour that he will come. It's what we call the imminent return of Christ. The hymn writer Horatius Bonar exhorted us to be ready for the last moment by being ready at every moment. And he goes on to say, so attending to every duty that let him come what, when he may, he finds the house in perfect order awaiting his return. The trump may sound any time. How important for us as Christians to be packed and ready to go. And so as you study the Olivet Discourse, the purpose of it is to awaken us, to cause us to look up awaiting our master's return. 
is chapter 24 of Matthew in verse 42 says, watch therefore you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then down in verse 48, if the evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. And so there's encouragement in the Olivet Discourse for perseverance in the midst of hard times that is going to come upon specifically the people of Israel. And so as we read Matthew chapter 24, as we read Daniel chapter 7 and 9 and 11, as we study Revelation chapter 6 through 19, Annie Dillard was right in her book called Holy the Firm when she says the greatest theological question of all time is, what in the Sam Hill is going on here? All right, I'm sure you asked that question. It is very important to note at this point in the book of Revelation, the view switches from the church worshiping in heaven, seeing God, the creator, seeing the lamb that was slain, the son, Jesus, seeing the Holy Spirit and all of his ministries in the throne room of God with the church worshiping. And now the focus goes towards the earth where God will be pouring out his wrath upon all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ during the church age. And so we are going to be studying a number of weeks, the wrath of God, the wrath of God against sin, the wrath of God against a world that would reject his grace and his mercy But as David Platt says, understanding God's wrath opens our eyes to the wonders of his love. You really need to understand the wrath of God against sin to understand the extent to which he's gone to deliver us from it by his grace and by his mercy. And in a culture that probably is synonymous to many cultures throughout history, a culture that examines friends passing away, we go to the funerals and churches are filled with individuals who say, surely this person is in heaven with God when every fruit of their life would point to them being a rejecter of God's grace and mercy. And we like to comfort ourselves with saying that, When the reality is we've also forgotten the equally great truth that God's wrath burns hot against sin. A.W. Tozer says that the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions and hushes their fears, and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity, while death draws every day nearer, and the command to repent goes unheeded. It is a foolish thing, and it is unbiblical to have such wishful thinking that those who rejected Christ their entire life, with no evidence of turning to Christ, are just with the Lord, no, you know, just, you know, no questions asked. When we're just neglecting the equally great truth of God's mercy, and that is God's wrath against sin. What is clear beyond question when studying Revelation is those who deny God, those who deny God will face his judgment. And we're so hopeful, even in those times, that God's mercy is great. The thief on the cross is a great example of a a deathbed confession, if you will. God is able to meet in those times. I've witnessed it in incredible ways. There's forgiveness for sin, which is wonderful. But the forgiveness is for God The profoundest of problems, John Stott says, because God's forgiveness of sinners is a threat to his holy character. 
You see, God's holy character is shown in the book of Revelation that as a just judge, he must judge sin. He must judge sin. There is no judge in our country who, when he winks at sin and lets people go by without punishment, that we would just let him remain upon his platform of judgment. We would demand he be fired. We would demand that justice be done. And as our great judge of the universe, God Almighty in his holiness must judge sin. But we know from scripture, he also forgives sin. And so how does he do this? He did this and does this because of the cross of Calvary. See, it was at the cross where God's holiness and justice met God's mercy and grace. Where a great exchange took place as he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for us. And took the wrath of God upon him at the cross. He was separated from the Father. And took the sins of the world upon his shoulders. So that anyone who would believe on that act. Would be seen with the mercy and grace of God. As having never sinned before. And as we trust in Jesus. All of our iniquities are washed away. And to God they are as far away as the east is from the west. And I would ask you today, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that the wrath of God would not abide on you, but that by faith you would know that it has been placed upon Jesus Christ at the cross. It's here in Revelation chapter six that we see the severity of God. But I believe that the severity of God in Revelation 6 through 19 is not upon true Christians. I believe it is not upon those who've been redeemed by the blood of that lamb. As 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 says that we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come. I left out a word there. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's the severity of God against sinners, but those who are in Jesus and awaiting his return are delivered from that wrath. And so consider with me over the course of the next few weeks the severity of God in the pouring out of his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Look at Romans eleven twenty-two. we'll have on the screen. It says, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Now we love looking at the goodness of God. But oftentimes we kind of, we don't want to talk about the severity of God as if it's something we need to be ashamed of, as if he's that alcoholic uncle or something that's always embarrassing us at the family. We don't talk about him. Like We do not need to be like that with the character of God and the attributes of God, i.e. his judgment. Okay? He has nothing that we need to defend him for. He is absolutely holy in all of his judgments. And as we consider even the severity of God in his wrath, it goes on in Romans eleven twenty two to say, on those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And so here is where the third part of the divine outline of Revelation continues on. You remember the divine outline, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And let me, uh, believe we have a chart there. Uh, I want to show you a couple things that uh, in my great skill I created. Isn't that amazing? You've probably never seen anything like this. Uh, 
I think I made this like 15 years ago to teach high schoolers, so you can tell. So you have the divine outline broken up into three parts. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, okay? Uh, And so let's just start chapter one in the orange on the left. We have the things which you have seen. John the Revelator sees Jesus. He's all about talking about what he's seen, that he's seen Jesus. Read the gospel of John, read the epistles of John. He loves that he was an eyewitness of Jesus. And here he sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus, the things which you have seen. And then chapters two and three begin in the blue, the things which are, which I personally believe in many of many of the commentaries that I've been reading and studying, believe that this represents the church age uh, there in chapter two and three, an age that we currently are living in being part of the redeemed, the part of the born again, the part of the church, universal and local here in Prineville. And then we have at the bottom there in the red, the things which shall take place after this third part of the divine outline. And I believe that begins in chapter four in the green and it goes all the way through the rest of the book. Everything from chapter four, verse one on is future stuff that's, that's going to happen. I believe chapter four, verse one speaks of the rapture of the church. John himself being raptured as a voice like a trumpet says, come up here. So he's up there and he sees in heaven a group of people that could only be described as uh, the church. Okay, the church in heaven, chapters four and five. Then in the red, we begin this week, chapters six through 19, which is called the tribulation. And we're going to get into this more as the weeks go. Technically, in the study, the first half of the red is called the tribulation. And then the second half of the red is called the great tribulation. And this happens after what is called the abomination of desolation. Now, don't, you know, oh, just forget I said that, okay? Because you're like, I don't even know. There's so much being thrown at me right now. Um, Wrath and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, and then uh, at the end of chapter 19, we have uh, Jesus' return. Uh, he has the second coming. He comes back to earth with the saints, sets up his kingdom here on earth for a thousand-year reign. Uh, and there in chapter 20, we have the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of that period is the great white throne judgment where God judges all of the sinners, and, uh, and it's really their eternal judgment where they are cast into hell for rejecting Christ. And then chapters 21 and 22 are the new heaven and the new earth. Just a beautifully glorious time, uh, and we'll, we'll study that in the weeks to come. So uh, occasionally we'll show this, might even have a few printouts just to help you. Uh, I know for many, Revelation just seems like so hard to understand, just so giant, and I'm just trying to help you break it down a little bit so that the Word of God um, to be understood by you all. Uh, we'll go to the next slide here real quick. This is another thing you can find on, uh, on, uh, the interwebs, but it's, uh, a little flyer that I've had, um, you know, since being a youth pastor and it's actually created by H.A. Ironside, a great preacher. Let me see how that looks to you guys. Okay. So I'm going to print off some of these to you all. Um, so that it's easier. We obviously have teeny tiny little words, uh, but basically we have a timeline from the time of Jesus dying on the left uh, through, and we would be at, um, we see the scroll here just past the word rapture. Here's where we're at on the timeline so far of our working through the, the book of Revelation. So uh, we have the cross of Jesus. Uh, then there's a line that says the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Okay. Uh, We have the book of Revelation shown, uh, the seven lampstands, chapters two and three, the seven churches are mentioned there. In chapter four, we have the rapture, okay? And then we have the the elders in heaven, the church in heaven, and we're at this scroll section right here, okay? So hopefully this will, just a little timeline to maybe help you begin to comprehend uh, uh, the book of Revelation. And so uh, we can move off of that before any brains start leaking out of ear canals here. And um, so in chapter six, we are going to begin to see the first six seals of the seven sealed scroll being undone one at a time. 
Each of these seals represents a time of judgment during the beginning of the tribulation. The seventh seal is not mentioned until two chapters later in chapter eight. All right. Um, We have the hope that the church will not be in this period in Revelation chapter three, verse 10. Where Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So just before this hour of trial comes, it's going to be a global test over the world. The faithful church in the last days will be kept out of this hour of trial. Okay. Um, And so let's begin uh, to look at it. We have the first seal cracked open off of this scroll. The first seal is this white horse known as the conqueror. It says in verse one, now I saw when the lamb opened up and I I realized, uh, I said, go to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 or Luke 21, go to Daniel. We're going to get there. That's why I put a bookmark there. Okay. Now we're back in our revelation study in revelation chapter uh, one. I, I, saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And so notice the lamb opened the seals. We know this was, is Jesus and that he was the only one worthy to open this, the seal. And why is that? Well, at the end of chapter five, it, there's a song sung in heaven by the four living creatures and by the elders or by the church. And the church sings it. Uh, the creatures will say things, but the church sings this new song. And they will say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is he the worthy one? Why couldn't anybody else on heaven or under the, on the earth or under the earth? Why couldn't anybody else open this? Is it you are worthy for you were slain. And you've redeemed us to God by your blood. And then we have this global salvation that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation have been redeemed and saved by Jesus and have been made kings and priests to God and they will reign on the earth. And so Jesus is worthy to open the scrolls and he is worthy to give judgment out onto the world that has rejected him. We saw that he is like, he's called the lion, but he appears as a lamb. He's got seven eyes, which speak of his omniscience, knowing all. He's got seven horns, which speak of his complete power and might. And he is the worthy one to give judgment out where judgment is due. And so one of these four living creatures tells John to come and see what this scroll was. He's got this voice like thunder. It's also translated, he had a roar. And and in scripture, the thunder often warns of an impending storm of divine wrath and judgment. And verse two says, so I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. A man bought a horse from a retired preacher living out in the open spaces of Wyoming After the deal was finalized, the pastor told the man, hey, you need to know something real quick. I happen to have trained this horse with Christian language. And so he will take off on the command of hallelujah. He will stop at the command of an amen. And so the the man said, hey, that's all right. That's pretty easy. I think I can handle that. And and he hops on the horse and the horse is just going really slow on out of the corral. And the guy's like, all right, time to kick this up a notch. And he says, hallelujah. And this horse just starts trotting. And another hallelujah makes him gallop. And another hallelujah, he is at a dead run across the Wyoming plains until those plains have these cliffs, if you don't know about them. And he's rushing up to a cliff and he sees it getting closer and closer. And so he begins to say, whoa, boy, whoa, whoa, boy, hey, whoa, boy, whoa. And this horse isn't stopping. And, and so he's like, man, what was it? What was the lingo that I was supposed to say to stop this horse? And finally, the, the cliff is getting closer and closer and closer. And finally, he remembers, oh, man, it, it was amen. And so he says, amen, and urch, right? And man, the hooves of this horse are right up against the cliff. And just with a sigh, the man just sits back in his saddle and says, hallelujah. 
It's in the book of Revelation. It was a footnote there. <clears throat> the horses that we're reading about in the next four judgments are anything but Christian-trained horses, right? And we were at the Polina Rodeo a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were watching all the team ropers. And, uh, man, for me, you know, I, I just love horses, and I'm just I'm looking out over all of the different colors and just the beauty and the markings and just gorgeous animals. Many of you know right there where I'm at. I'm sitting there with all my cowboy friends up on the hill watching this take place. And my wife says, all those horses just look the same to me. <laughs> and I'm just like, who are you? <laughs> and I went and sat over, you know, with some other friends for a while and <laughs> contemplated life's choices. But for those who are horse lovers, this text is for you. However, there is much more than a fine herd of steeds being shown off. These are the judgments of God upon a Christ-rejecting earth. And I hear about this when I get home from Lindsay. This is not going to be good. In 1983, Billy Graham addressed the horses coming in a book called Approaching Hoofbeats, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And here he writes, The shadows of all four horsemen can already be seen galloping throughout the world at this moment. In a little bit, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. We're going to see why would the shadows of these horses, uh, the hoofbeats, already be being heard even today. The mass murderer Charles Manson identified the musical quartet, the Beatles, as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No one questions their popularity and influence, but they pale in comparison to these four cowboys, right? And Billy Graham later wrote in his book, They're the Approaching Hoofbeats. He writes, they are terrible and terrifying. The scenes in which they are described are among the most dreadful in the Bible, Many great painters of history have tried to depict this on canvas, but no artist can fully portray the wonder and horror of these events. And so the seven seals, we're going to see within those seven, uh, we have four horsemen, okay? Then we're going to have, uh, we're going to have two more seals, and then the seventh will be later, okay? And and the pattern of the judgments in Revelation are that the seventh seal judgment will lead to the seven trumpet judgments, okay? And the seventh trumpet judgment will lead into the seventh bowl judgments. And so they're kind of connected uh, to that final judgment there. There's a real sense in which these series of judgments have a pattern of divine judgment and spiritual conflict Yet there seems to be a spiraling nature of these conflicts to move us to what's called the omega point of history. Essentially, this final climactic fulfillment just before the return of King Jesus. It's, it's severe and it's so exciting all at the same time. Now, we've read this first horse Sure looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? I mean, many of you, if this is the first time you've read the book of Revelation, you might be like, oh, wow, you know, it, Jesus, he's on a horse at this moment. And if you know the book of Revelation, later on in chapter 19, verse 11, you do see Jesus riding on a white horse. But there's a few reasons as to why this is not Jesus. Number one, he's in heaven and he's opening the seals on the scroll at the moment. Uh, the writer here has a bow, and when Jesus comes riding back on a horse in Revelation, he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We see here that a certain type of crown is given to this writer, and yet the, the crown that Jesus has is that of a king, and it's a diadem, and it is one of specific authority. Now, this first horseman has a bow, and he seems like a type of warrior, doesn't he? And yet that bow is missing something. It's missing the arrows. This writer also, notice, was given a crown. 
he was granted a crown. And this type of crown of this first horseman is called a Stephanos in the Greek. And it's that olive leaf type crown that would be given to the Olympic athletes. It's a temporary crown that is a prize or an, a, an accomplishment. This temporary crown, as opposed to the diadem that Jesus wears, which is that permanent crown. Now, there's a few opinions as to who this is. Some people do think it's Jesus. Some people think it's Apollos coming and representing false religion. Some would say it's the Antichrist. Some say it's the spirit of conquest. Some say it's the government persecuting Christians. And some say it's Satan's servants in general. And my personal opinion is that this is uh, the Antichrist coming on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation. This first horseman of the apocalypse is also seen other places in scripture coming at about the same time, setting up what we're going to see in the next number of chapters. And in other places in scripture, he's called the little horn. It's a great nickname, right? It was my nickname in high school band class, actually. Um, No, just kidding. But uh, he's called the little horn of Daniel chapter seven. And if you now go over to Daniel chapter seven, verse eight, you have Daniel where he's considering a number of horns, 10 horns. And there was another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked up from the roots. Okay. Now I already know what you're thinking. Okay. Okay. This is odd stuff, like weird, painful horn issues going on. All right. And uh, the book of Daniel is a super exciting book and we've taught through it here at the church. You can get on our sermon series and listen to it. And uh, there may be a point where we go back and actually look at these, but what you have in the book of Daniel is incredible prophecies in chapter two and chapter seven and chapter 10 and chapter or chapter nine, chapter 10, chapter 11, incredible prophecies of world orders that will take place that directly affect the nation of Israel. Such incredible prophecies, prophecies that would, would show that Babylon would be destroyed and taken over by the Greek or by the Medo-Persian empire and that the Persians would overtake within their own empire. They would overtake the Medes. And then you have that the Greeks would come on the scene, even with Alexander the Great prophesied uh, coming and, and taking over from the Persians and that you would have the Romans come and take over from uh, the Greeks and, and specific governmental prophecies that just blow your mind. In fact, many skeptics think that there was hanky-panky done with the text because the scripture is so spot on prophetically. But something we see in the prophets is that uh, there will be a horn come in an empire, uh, an empire that has 10 leaders uh, known as what we would know today as the revived Roman Empire. And he will pluck out three of these leaders by the roots And then it says there in Daniel 7, 8, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking pompous words, okay? So you have this horn come up uh, through this revived Roman empire and he's going to take out three of the kings as he does. And he is a guy that has very great, boastful, boisterous Words. Something we know about this guy is that he is going to be a gifted orator with a golden tongue. If you jump down to verse 11 of Daniel chapter 7, it says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And then jump down to verse 20 through 22. Ten horns, so there's an interpretation now given regarding the ten horns, the three horns ripped out, the little horn that speaks pompously. And so then the angel interprets this to Daniel and he says, the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before the three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came 
and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And so what you have there is little mini book of Revelation here in the book of Daniel taking place, explaining what's going to happen with the Antichrist, how he's going to get his kingdom, that his kingdom will not be the kingdom that lasts forever ever and ever. He will be dethroned and the saints will get the kingdom. And then also in Daniel chapter 7 verse 24... This is the little horn, okay? I'm just letting you know. Who is this guy on a white horse? He's also called the little horn. And the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from his kingdom. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different than the first ones. And he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saint shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. And so we understand that to be uh, the Israelis in the tribulation as well as the Israeli or as the tribulation saints. And we'll see that later on when we get to chapter 13 of Revelation. How's everybody doing? Okay. Little horn. Okay. All right. That's not so hard. He's the little horn of Daniel chapter seven. He's known as the prince who is to come of Daniel chapter nine, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And so um, I I think we're going to actually do a Daniel chapter 9 study after our chapter six of Revelation study, because Daniel chapter nine is just incredible. But what's prophesied there is that the temple's gonna be destroyed after Jesus dies, after Messiah dies, and then the people of the prince, the little horn, the Romans, um, are gonna destroy the city and the sanctuary, okay? Uh, and so he's known as the prince who is to come, uh, or this guy on the white horse. He's known as the seed of the serpent, Okay, where was that? Seed of the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we have what's called the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. This is the first place in the Bible where the gospel is preached. And it's from God to Satan. And he's telling Satan that the seed of the woman will come, and he's going to crush your seed. Okay? And uh, and it says, I'll put enmity between, enmity between, you and the woman, and between your seed, who's going to be the Antichrist, and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or the language is, he shall crush your head, and in doing so, you shall bruise his heel. So he's known as the seed of the serpent, okay? He's known, back in Daniel, sorry that the order was off there, I meant to correct that. Back in Daniel, chapter 11, verse 21, he's known as the despicable person. Daffy Duck loved this guy. You're despicable. All right. Uh, he's known as the despicable person. And Daniel eleven twenty one. In his place shall arise a vile person or despicable person. Vile means to cause or able to cause nausea, thoroughly unpleasant, despicable, loathsome, foul, and offensive. Okay, so that's, that's this nice guy on a nice white horse that just seems so great. Okay, This vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably. Okay, So with a bow without arrows, he'll come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Okay, With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. So he's going to uh, remove the high priest from temple worship. And we'll get into where's the temple. That's a whole nother story. And after a league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. For he shall come up and be strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even to the richest place of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Okay, so this despicable person is primarily or firstly fulfilled 
in the Greek known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he does something for the Grecian army in Jerusalem that is a type of what the Antichrist is going to do in the book of Revelation. And Jesus himself says what's going to happen later on is it's a fulfillment of what Daniel 11 prophesied, what the Greek Antiochus Epiphanes did. That was all small beans compared to what this guy is going to do. He is going to do something that is called the abomination of desolation. Okay, now let's look in Daniel chapter 11, verse 29 through 32. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. Okay, and so what it's talking about here is there was a a battle between the different Greek armies. And so same, they were from the same Greek roots and the same Greek father, Alexander the Great. Uh, but there was civil war amongst them, okay? So uh, what's happening uh, is there's a southern and a northern king fighting, but it shall not be like the former or latter. For ships from Cyprus, this is the Romans, shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So Roman ships came from Cyprus, fought against Antiochus Epiphanes, told him to knock it off. He got really upset, went into Jerusalem, raged against the Holy Covenant and did damage. Uh, It goes on to say, so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant and forces shall be mustered by him. They shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So what happened was Antiochus Epiphanes was totally ticked off. His war wasn't going his way. He was a very wicked man. So he goes into Jerusalem and he removes all of the holy items and he sacrifices a pig in the Holy of Holies and he smeared the pig's blood all over the place and just totally desecrated the holy place. Okay, it says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Okay, again, he's just, he's able to get what he wants through what he has to say, okay? A bow with no arrows, if you will. Then it goes on here in Daniel eleven twenty nine. but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So the interesting part of the story for Greece is that after Antiochus Epiphanes killed the pig and defiled the sanctuary, a group of strong and courageous, zealous Jews known as the Maccabeans came They had an incredible father who raised them up to fear the Lord. They came in and fought against the Greeks and they came into the temple and they began to clean the temple, but they only had enough oil in their lamp for about eight hours. And the temple cleaning took about a few days. And so I think it was eight days. And, uh, and so they prayed and miraculously there was oil in the lamp for the amount of time it took them to clean up after the Grecian abomination of desolation. And that's where the Jews celebrate the holiday of lights, the festival of lights or Hanukkah. So uh, just a little bit of history for you that you're like, okay. All that to say, the Old Testament foreshadows and prophesies what is going to be happening in the day of the Lord through this man on a white horse, okay? He's gonna be a character that we're gonna see known by some different names throughout the book of Revelation. But so far we've seen him as the little horn, as the, uh, as the prince who is to come, the despicable person, and the one who brings the abomination of desolation. And we'll see that uh, later on as well. Uh, there in Daniel chapter 11, verse 33 through 35, those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those uh, who understand shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. This man on white is also known as the strong-willed king of Daniel 11.36. The strong-willed king. Bear with me, guys. Then this king shall do according to his own will. So he's a pompous guy. He's a vile guy. He's doing whatever he wants. He's defiling the sanctuary. And essentially what we're going to see later on in like Revelation 13, we're going to see he demands to be worshipped. And uh, he does according to his own will. He exalts and magnifies himself above every god. 
and shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. Uh, He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now notice Daniel calls this period with this guy, the strong-willed king, he calls it a day of wrath. And he's prophesying of the wrath of God against the world. And while it seems like this is all Satan's doing, God sovereignly is over it all. He's over it all. He's causing this to happen because he is a just God. Part of his justice is he's using this deceptive one to pour out judgment and wrath upon the Christ-rejecting world. Um, He's also known as the man of sin. The man of sin or the son of perdition. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That name, son of perdition, means the son of destruction, the son of waste, the son of loss. And so what Thessalonians is telling us, that the day of the Lord that begins with the rapture of the church that won't begin until this guy's on the scene. And so at any moment, this guy could be being raised up, could be being groomed, and that when the rapture happens, boom, immediately, first thing to happen is this guy on a white horse, known by all of these names that we've studied so far, uh, that he's going to immediately come on the scene, this man of sin, the son of perdition, okay? He's also known as the beast from the sea in Revelation 13, 1. He's known as the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And Antichrist doesn't necessarily mean, oh, he's Antichrist. Anti means in place of. And so what he's trying to do, we're going to see that he's a guy that is going to mimic Jesus in so many ways. He's going to try to take the place of Christ. And John tells us that even now, many Antichrists are on the world. There are many people who are trying to take the place of Christ. This is in 1 John 2, 18. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know it's the last hour. So just that we know there's little Antichrists around, show us it's coming and and there's going to be one main Antichrist. Okay, now that leads us into... Uh, looking real quick today before we wrap up at the Olivet Discourse. And for the next week, we're going to kind of hop to the Olivet Discourse and we're going to hop to the book of Revelation and we're just going to kind of see how these things coincide. That there's synergy uh, between the Olivet Discourse and these seal judgments, okay? Okay. These seal judgments. So Matthew 24 verse 3 says the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Matthew, and you can read about it in Mark 13, these disciples, asked him privately on the Mount of Olives these two things, okay? And it takes Jesus two whole chapters to answer uh, a certain special question that they're going to ask, which is... um, In fact, uh, I thought my reference was typed out there. We got it there. Okay, sweet. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. Jesus had just told them the temple will be destroyed. And they asked three questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? Um... We just lost it off the screen, so I'm going to look at my notes again. When will the temple be destroyed? Uh, What will be the sign of your coming? And the third question that Jesus answered is, what is the sign of the end of the age or the end of the world? Okay. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as in a thief in the night. For when you say peace and safety, 
Then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Okay? So what are the signs of his coming and the end of the age? Jesus gets into that in Matthew chapter 24, and he's going to say all of these things are signs of my coming. He's going to describe it as the beginning of sorrows. Okay? The beginning of sorrows. Like, this is the beginning of this horrific time upon the earth. And he also is going to call it, or as the NAS says, the beginning of birth pangs. So what Jesus is going to say are the signs leading up to this. It's similar to a woman giving birth. We know that when a woman is pregnant, that she begins to get bigger. And there begins to be movement that's not normally seen. That there's a certain gestation period. And that there is a new pain that is more frequent and more intense until that final day of the birth. Now, Matthew 24, let's just look at verses 1 through 5 here before we wrap up and we'll get to the second seal judgment next week. Matthew 24, verse 1 through 5. So Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. I always think of the disciples like showing Jesus, look at all these great buildings and they're kind of giving him a tour, you know. Look at all these great buildings. Aren't they so wonderful? And Jesus looks at all of them and he makes a prophecy. He says to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he makes this prophecy at this beautiful temple, this temple that's taken centuries to build. It's full of billions of dollars of gold. It's so ornamented. It's just gorgeous. It's the one of the wonders of the ancient world. And Jesus makes this bold prophecy. Something is going to happen that's going to cause every stone of this thing to be knocked over. And we know that that happened just a number of years later in 70 AD when the warrior for the Romans, Titus, was sieging Jerusalem. There was a great siege for nearly a year. And when they finally broke through, Titus said, Titus Vespasian said, Hey guys, I, I fear this God. I believe in many gods, but he's one of them. So don't touch his temple. And as the Romans were plundering Jerusalem, one of the soldiers who was drunken and partying tossed a torch into the temple and it lit a fire. And that hot fire of the temple melted the gold, billions of dollars of gold in the temple. And it began to creep through all of the stones and the cracks of the temple. And so Titus had his soldiers rip every stone off of the temple and cast it off the temple mount so that they could get all of the gold off the temple. Today you can go to Jerusalem and just in the last probably 30 years, archaeologists have discovered where these stones were tossed off the temple mount. They're about the size of a car and they're just just rubble all over the place. It's these temple stones that were the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy. And so when, when Jesus says this, the disciples are just flabbergasted. And so as they have a little private time with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse, they said, so tell us when will these things be and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And so we know in our studying that Jesus is saying that, that these things are the beginning of sorrows. These things that I'm going to tell you, they're like birth pangs. And so in this first seal that we're at today, the first birth pangs of the end of the age is that we're going to begin to see little antichrists come on the scene. We're going to begin to see people who claim to be the Messiah, people that have got another way of salvation, people that are going to deceive us and try to take the place of redemption and try to take the place of glory and try to take the place of worship of Jesus Christ. And that's when John says, my little children, we know it's the last hour because many little antichrists have gone out. And that is a sign, John tells us, that there's one big antichrist who's going to come on the scene. And so this is the first seal. I don't plan on taking a whole week for each seal, but this just gets the ball rolling for us for the seal judgments. Uh, this first seal judgment opened up by the Lamb of God. Later on in our text of Revelation 6, did you catch it today? 
that this is all the wrath of the Lamb of God against the world? Did you read that? It's in verse 16 of Revelation chapter 6. The wrath of the Lamb. As he opens up this seal, and this man on the white horse, this son of perdition, this cocky king, he comes on the scene, and he's the fulfillment of what all these little birth pangs have been leading up to this point. And so as we have the worship team come up, I have really been prayerful that as we go through the book of Revelation, as we begin to get into this tribulation period, that not only do we ask the question of every good Bible studier, the question of what, that's what we've been trying to do today. We've been like, what? right? What in the Sam Hill's going on here, right? That's what we've been doing. What? Who could this be? What's going on? But we also ask the question of, so what? So what? What's the big deal? You know, and the scripture is very clear that this is a book that will be such a blessing to those that read it, hear it, and keep it, but that it would make us a people that keep it that obey it. And as we combine all the scriptures about this great subject, we know that number one, the wrath of God is hot against sinners. We studied that at the beginning of the text today. So what? So I don't think you want to be here when his wrath is poured out. But we also studied that not only is his wrath great, so is his mercy. And because his wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross, his mercy is poured out to anyone who believes in Jesus, who believes that Jesus was the substitute for them on the cross, that he paid the debt that you owed. And every time I take the bread during communion, I remember a saying of a friend of mine that the body of Christ was the sponge that absorbed the wrath of God for us. Wrath of God does not have to abide upon you. And the work of this vile person that we've read about today, that one day will affect the whole world, does not have to be for you. The wrath of God could be subsided for you in Jesus Christ as you trust in what Jesus has done, as you repent of your sin, as you hate your sin, you declare it to be an affront to God, an offense to God, and you can receive the mercy and grace and the forgiveness. You can receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that now you look for his return and you live for his return. You're like those explorers that you just got the bag packed and you're like, I'm, I always believed that you would return for us. And a verse that's going to be clinging to us as we close out nearly every week is going to be Titus 2.13. That we would be those who look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we are in the church age and we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's part of the so what here. Are you looking for Jesus? Are you redeemed? You've had what Jesus done on the cross, placed into your account. You're forgiven. You're bought by the blood of Christ. He has absorbed the wrath of God towards you. Now you're looking for his return and you're living for his return. And then, Kristen, it should be one of the last verses, 2 Peter 3, 8. I'm just totally jumping to the bottom of about 25 pages of notes today. 2 Peter 3, 8, where Peter says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that the day of the Lord is of a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, it'll come as a thief in the night. So we're in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, listen to this, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I mean, if all of this is going to be happening, if the Lord is really going to be doing this, if he still has a plan, if there's future for us, if there's future for the world, if we're following this eschatology, a biblical eschatology, even if it varies in opinion from what I've shared today, if you have a biblical, you just want to be biblical in your end times understanding, what manner of people ought we to be? Manner of people in holy conduct? How are we living? In godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And Lord, we believe your word, Lord. We believe Genesis through Revelation. 